Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, the Andrew Lawton Show on this Thursday, January 11th. This is our last program for a week in the lovely Dominion of Canada. Next week, as you may have heard, we are taking the show on the road. We'll be doing it live from Swift. Actually, I should probably tell you, we are not going to be doing the show from Switzerland. We are going to be doing, this is a funny story in a way. We're going to be doing the show from Austria uh, because we could not afford an Airbnb in Switzerland. This is like how dedicated we are to bringing you coverage from Davos. Uh, so in the past, uh, you've heard me lament what happens here. The problem is that the World Economic Forum snatches up every hotel in Davos and the neighboring town of Klosters. And there are a smattering, I don't know what the quantitative value is of a smattering, but I think smattering fits here. There are a smattering of Airbnbs. And as you find, you have a couple of options. There is like some giant chalet that goes for uh, $10,000 a night, or there is like a, a stained mattress that's shoved in some uh, creepy mountain man's closet, uh, which is like oddly also $10,000 a night. So there's like a going rate for these things. Uh, but uh, Sean and I didn't want to like bunk up with the mountain man in his closet. So uh, last time when we went, we found a, an Airbnb because we booked very early. I was literally at my computer the day they announced the dates for Davos and was able to book an Airbnb at not a, a terrible price. Uh, that Airbnb long gone this time around. Uh, this time, uh, we I think I hesitated like five minutes to book and we could not find a place. Uh, even places we were finding that on Airbnb were saying they were available, we would go and do the booking and then be like, ah, oh, no, sorry. Uh, we are uh, reserving this for the WEF. And I was like, well, I'm going to WEF, but they're like, uh, no, 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 the World Economic Forum will tell us. Uh, we don't want you schlubs here. They'll tell us who they want to put up there. So uh, it ended up being where uh, we were going to have to spend like some obscene amount, like tens of thousands of dollars for five nights, or we could get very affordable accommodations, uh, not the next town over, not the next county over, but the next country over. So uh, we will be driving in and out on those lovely mountain roads in January every day. So uh, we may need to do a crowdfunding campaign to like just fish the car out of the bottom of the Swiss or Austrian Alps uh, in uh, from Lake Zurich uh, to bring back home. But uh, hopefully it won't come to that. Uh, we We'll, uh, we will be very careful and cautious, but that's how dedicated we are to getting there and, and getting the story. So at least it should be a, a rather beautiful commute. But uh, this is all a long way of saying next week we're doing the show in a different location and we're going to be doing it in a different time as well. So I believe we settled on 3 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Mountain Time. So two hours later than normal, just to give us time to you know drive to Austria, which is a, a strange sentence, and get uh, all situated after covering what's been happening in Davos during the day. But uh, Davos is just one of many global summits where people come together and decide to uh, put their agendas forward for the world. There is also the World Health Organization. Now, the WHO is a body that prior to three years ago, it was a much simple, I guess four years ago now, it was a much simpler time. We didn't really know of it. If it popped up on our radar at all, it would be because every now and then they put out some press release about malaria or Ebola and they kind of keep their nose clean. But then COVID came along 
And just as the COVID pandemic empowered a wave of public health officials in this country who had only ever had meaning and purpose from uh, distributing condoms to high school students found all of a sudden they had tremendous power and they effectively became the de facto heads of government in, in places across co the country. And uh, now we have on a, a global scale, a World Health Organization that has had a, a similarly emboldened sense of self in the last four years, which is a, a bit of a wind up to what's happening in May when countries from around the world will descend on Geneva, Switzerland. All world domination tends to start and end in Switzerland for some reason, but they'll descend on Switzerland, on Geneva, and they will put forward what they hope to become a pandemic treaty. A pandemic treaty. Now, a treaty implies a, an agreement between states. This is what they hope to accomplish. So as of right now, it's a draft treaty. It's a proposed treaty. It's a proposed agreement. But if you look at what they have proposed, there are things that people should be very concerned about. They talk about making the World Health Organization the body that sits at the helm and declares a public health emergency, which you may think, okay, what's the big deal? Well, this also means that countries who sign on to this are saying they undertake to follow the WHO's recommendations. If the WHO says shut down your border, countries are essentially committing to doing that. If the WHO says, hang on, you need to mandate vaccination, countries are committing to doing that. Now, any international relations expert will say, well, hang on, no, these agreements don't force countries to do anything. They're not binding. But at the same time, we are foolish to turn away and turn a blind eye to countries saying they want to do this and, and willingly saying they are going to do this. Uh, what else does the draft agreement say? That countries will commit to censoring uh, what they call disinformation, misinformation, and this is something that we're all just supposed to shrug our shoulders at. Now, when people like Leslie Lewis, who's a conservative member of parliament, have spoken out about this, the media and the liberals will just dismiss them as conspiracy theorists. Here's one exchange in the House of Commons where Justin Trudeau faces some questioning about this. The Honourable Member for Haldeman Norfolk. Mr. Speaker, May 22nd to May 28th, representatives from 194 countries will meet in Geneva at the World Health Assembly to discuss the WHO Global Pandemic Treaty and to vote on amendments to the international health regulations. Why didn't this Prime Minister establish a public health inquiry into our COVID response before considering signing amendments to the international health regulations? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, as an active member of the WHO, Canada has always been there uh, to push for better science, to push uh, for better impacts uh, in the way we collaborate around the world. Uh, Canada is a leading voice on ensuring not only that we make it through this pandemic, which is continuing to be ongoing, uh, but also that we prepare uh, for future pandemics, which unfortunately may well be the reality for decades and generations to come. Uh, we will continue to be active, strong participants in international fora around health, while always uh, respecting and protecting Canada's sovereignty and choices to make uh, the right decisions for its own citizens. 
Oh, that was a load of nothing. It was a bit of a word salad. Perhaps there might even be listeria there in that word salad, and we can call it a public health emergency and uh, trigger a shutdown of speeches like that in the years to come. Uh, why has there not been a public health inquiry? Maybe it's because Justin Trudeau does not want an admission from Canadian officials under oath that there was no scientific basis for much of what happened. Uh, take, for example, this story in the New York Post where Anthony Fauci, who was the Theresa Tam of the United States. Uh, Anthony Fauci was testifying before the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic that the six feet apart recommendations, social distancing, it was all the rage a few years back, was, quote, likely not based on scientific data. So, you know, those stickers, you still see them on grocery store floors every now and then. It's a, a bit of an artifact of a bygone era. Uh, but all of that, we had to orient our lives around it. Restaurants had to pull tables out because of it. And it was, oh, well, likely not based on scientific data, Anthony Fauci is admitting. And again, I don't think Justin Trudeau wants Theresa Tam to make those same admissions in Canada about social distancing, vaccine mandates, border closures, shutdowns, and so on. Sean says someone should open a COVID-themed restaurant like 10 years from now. Well, actually, I have opened a COVID-themed restaurant uh, because it's no restaurant at all. The restaurant's all closed during COVID. So there you go. A COVID-themed restaurant is just no food uh, takeout only. That is, uh, that's the COVID-themed restaurant. But you could probably have some fun with it. I think in Las Vegas, there's that heart attack diner or heart attack grill. Uh, so yeah, I'm sure you could do that. We could come up with uh, in the comments your best menu items for the uh, COVID. I would say uh, Fatten the Curve would be the name of of the COVID restaurant, if I just think of the first one that comes to mind there. But uh, nevertheless, we'll uh, get to COVID nostalgia in uh, time to come, I, I am uh, certain. Uh, let's talk about this World Health Organization business here. Uh, Bruce Party had a great piece in the National Post about this, where he talks about why I think people in Canada and around the world should be very concerned. He is a law professor at Queen's University and the executive director of Rights Probe, and it is always good to see him. Bruce, uh, welcome back. Thanks for coming on today. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Uh, so, I mean, there's always this battle whenever we see these international agreements uh, where anytime someone raises alarm bells, as you rightly have, uh, you get people saying, oh, it's non-binding. What's the big deal? Don't worry about it. And I say, well, if it's you know so insignificant, why bother doing it at all? <laughs> but why is it you find this one to be of particular concern? Well, this, this is part of the plan for the next time around, yes? So I think it goes like this. The who takes responsibility for, for driving the boat. They get authority to declare when a public health emergency happens and they get to make recommendations that will be binding. And the countries will promise to put the binding recommendations into place in their own countries. Now, as you say, the control is basically still in the hands of the individual governments in those countries. But the game here is that I think those governments will use the WHO's recommendations as cover for their own decisions, as in, well, I'm sorry, but the WHO has recommended lockdown, so you have to stay in your house, and we're sorry, but it's out of our hands. So in this way, they're sloughing off responsibility for making the hard calls, even though hard calls is what they want to make. Governments are always anxious to avoid responsibility, and this is one of the ways they're going to do it.
That's a, an incredible point. And I think that was one of the big disgraces of the pandemic response. I mean, around the world, but certainly in Canada is where you had governments hiding behind public health bureaucrats. Uh, it happened federally with Theresa Tam. It happened in, in pretty much every single province. And it, it you know, one of the big issues from a policy perspective is that public health bureaucrats, that they have their place. I would say it's a far smaller place now that I would give them than I would have given them five, six years ago. But they're very singularly focused on one metric. They're not focused on constitutionality. They're not focused on the economy. They're not focused on uh, mental health. They're not focused on child development. They're focused on, okay, getting cases down, even if we could agree on on what a case was and and how significant it was. And and yeah, it's very dangerous for people that we elect to make the decisions, which we think are going to come from other experts. Like a response should have been, okay, we hear what the public health doctor has to say. We hear what the economist has to say to say. We hear what the uh, child psychiatrist has to say, and then we make a decision on balance. Now, maybe they wouldn't make the right one, but at least there would be a a clear delineation of of who made the responsibility. It's incredibly dangerous, as you point out, to hide behind the experts, which is really what they're agreeing to do here. That's exactly right. It's a a plan to hide. And, and, you know, I, I have, I agree with what you said, but I have an even more basic um, objection, which is that there are some of these decisions that ought not to have been able to be made in the sense mm-hmm. that they told people what to do with their own lives and and instructed them on what risks that, that they were allowed to take themselves, which is not a thing that any kind of official ought to have in my books. But yes, this is going to change the focus from the local officials who who are exercising their discretion to giving them an excuse for saying that they really have no choice, which is which is absolutely not correct. So there's one of the arguments against this planned regime from the WHO is that it will override our sovereignty and it will suspend our constitution. And, and those two things are really not quite true. Yes, it will have, a, it will affect us detrimentally. Yes, it will appear that we will lose control over the rules that are being applied to us. All those things are true. But the real, the real, the real people to finger in this, and it's not just the who, it is actually our own officials, our own politicians, our own government, who number one, are eager to sign on to this. And number two, who actually still have the authority to decide and to decide to what extent they're going to recognize our rights and freedoms, our civil liberties, and, and, and the ones who are failing to weigh all the factors that, that, you, that you mentioned. They are the ones who are really at fault, and they are the ones who are democratically accountable to us. The officials in the WHO, the bureaucrats in the WHO, are not accountable mm-hmm. to us. They are accountable to the countries that put together this agreement. So our first line of, of, of attack, if you like to put it that way, are the people who purport to represent us. And they are the ones who are falling down on the job. Yes, and we've already seen uh, in one notable way, I'll describe momentarily, where our government is all too willing to go along with this, and that's on regulating discourse. So uh, in this draft agreement, uh, the uh, it says that countries would commit to censoring, quote, false, misleading, misinformation, or disinformation, unquote. Now, these are terms we've heard the federal government in Canada talk about warranting a government response already. Uh, and we know that the government in Canada is uh, doing an overhaul 
of internet regulations as we speak. Well, here we have a prime example where these two agendas seem to be aligned already. It's perfect. It's perfect. I mean, can't you just imagine the government saying, well, you know, we were, we're concerned about this, but the WHO basically has told us that this kind of information should not be allowed because it interferes with global health. Global health, my goodness, well, we can't ignore that. So we're going to have to put in, in place regulations that require you to, or, or prohibit you from, you know, questioning the, the, the narrative that the WHO has put forward as to what's important to keep people alive, all right? So that's, it's, a, it's a perfect excuse for the government to do what it already wants to do. And in that way, make it appear as though they're not the one making the call. I, I just checked on YouTube where we're, we're streaming live right now, because every now and then we get like the big disclaimer that YouTube throws up on our shows, depending on what we're talking about. And I don't know if they put it up live or if they put it up after the fact. We don't have one now, but uh, often, no, right. we didn't get in that yet, Sean. But like, if you talk about climate change, you'll get like a disclaimer. If you talk about COVID, you will. Uh, and sometimes it's like a disclaimer from Health Canada. Other times it's from the World Health Organization and right. uh, the, the information they give you. So we already have, I mean, there's an example of big tech on its own deciding to outsource you know truth basically to the world health organization and just imagine if you uh, go one step further and make that a deputization by the state to do the same thing and i i don't think you know being able to say it with a disclaimer will even satisfy what countries want i think they want you to not be able to say it at all oh oh no question no question and sure so so the the Proponents of this will say, quite rightly, actually, that this does not suspend the Constitution. You know, your rights and freedoms are still in place. The who doesn't have the power mm -hmm. to, to, to set the Constitution aside. That is true. But we've already seen that during the first round, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was not very useful. The courts did not come to the conclusion that a lot of these measures violated the Charter, right? So just because the Charter is not being suspended, doesn't mean that you're going to have your civil liberties. And if, 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 if international norms change and, and the cause is a global cause and a court, a Canadian court is interpreting what the constitution means, then it's just as likely that that court, especially given the track record, is going to say, well, of course you still have your rights, but in this case, your, the infringement of your rights are, are, are either not existing or they're justified under section one of the charter, because after all, we have this emergency and the who has said so. So this, yeah. this, this, the, the, this, it does, these, this plan does not have to suspend our constitution in order for the plan to be a very bad idea. Yeah, I think that's a, a very valid point. And, and I'd go back to where you mentioned a few moments ago as being the first line of defense on this, which is the nation state. It, it's countries that need to have pressure put on them by their citizens to perhaps change or scrap this process. I mean, I'm looking around at the world here and not to say I, I have a firm grip on every domestic government around the world. But if I look at the big players, I'm not seeing anyone with one exception that I think would push back against that. And that one exception may 
maybe is the Argentinian president. I, I mean, I know he's an economic libertarian. I don't know if he wants to be the bull in the china shop on the world stage at some of these and and say, no, we're, we're not signing on to this. Who knows? Argentina doesn't wield a huge amount of power, but the United States does. And I don't think Joe Biden is going to say no to this. Uh, I don't think Canada will. The UK has a nominally conservative government, but as you and I actually discussed in the UK, not really uh, when you talk about all these things. So I, I don't see any countries that are going to want to put their necks out and say, whoa, I, I'm not signing on to this in its current form. Oh, I think that's a correct assessment. Uh, I, and in fact, it's difficult to know exactly what's going on behind the scenes as this thing is negotiated. But but I would guess that a lot of these countries are actually pushing for this for the very reason that it's, that it's to their advantage so that they are set up better than they were last time to do the same kinds of things as last time and worse, like like the like the more targeted prohibition on expression of dissenting views. So obviously we have to be a bit forward looking here and uh, we hear, I mean, that clip I played from Justin Trudeau earlier, he's talking about, oh, pandemics for years to come. So, you know, I've gone my entire life without ever having a, a pandemic until the last few years, as have you, as of, you know, anyone who was born after the Spanish flu, basically. And uh, now we're being told this is just going to be business as usual, which I think is in and of itself a bit suspicious because we've seen the, the public healthification of everything. And I, I think that's another part here that is not really said in the treaty, which is that what they decide to call a public health emergency is a big issue. I mean, we hear people saying that you need to make obesity uh, a pandemic. You need to make climate change a pandemic. Yes. And all of a yes. sudden you take these yes. powers and apply them to all of these other things. And we've got a big problem on our hands. Yeah, no question. No question. This is, this, this is, this is very broad, discretionary, vague power to declare an emergency you know, when you feel like it. People have referred to this as the beginning of the biomedical state, and I think they're mm -hmm. right. This is this is this is a new era. They're normalizing what happened during COVID, and, and this 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 is this is this is bad news. They're obviously you can see it in Justin Trudeau's comment comments. They're they're planning for this to be the normal thing, where the powers that they exercised are going to be powers that they exercise regularly whenever they think it's justified. And believe me, if you have power, the state is going to use them. All right, Bruce Party, it is a fantastic piece in the National Post, WHO Health Treaty, a convenient cover for more government overreach. You are the best one on the army against the technocrats. So we're glad to have you, Bruce. Thanks so much. Thanks, Andrew. Good to see you. All right. Thank you as well. And I should pl play this clip, by the way. So uh, Tedros Adhanom is the non-doctor uh, who, I mean, he's got a PhD, but he's not a medical doctor at the helm of the WHO. I uh, wanted to play this clip from him for your benefit right now. We cannot kick this can down the road. If we do not make the changes that must be made, then who will? And if we do not make them now, and when? When the next pandemic comes knocking, and it will, we must be ready to answer decisively, collectively, and equitably. And for enhanced international cooperation, the pandemic accord, a generational commitment that we will not go back to the old cycle of panic and neglect that left our world vulnerable, but move forward with a shared commitment to meet shared threats with a shared response. That's why we say the pandemic accord is a generational 
agreement. That is uh, Tedros uh, teeing up the pandemic accord at last year's World Health Assembly, now coming uh, this year. To be honest, we haven't made a decision. I was wondering if it would be worth going to Geneva to cover it. And then I looked up the price and it was like even to stay at like some uh, weird mid-level like residence in it was going to be like $750 a night so uh, maybe maybe we uh, skip out the uh, World Health Assembly in Geneva you never know we, we can uh, maybe I can stay in a, so on Geneva we'd have to stay in France if we wanted to do the, the commute every day but uh, nevertheless that was Ted Ross now he's going to be in Davos next week I was looking at the agenda for what presentations uh, people can see at the World Economic Forum annual meeting. And one of them is this, preparing for disease X with fresh warnings from the World Health Organization that an unknown disease X, because uh, X is like the menacing letter. If they called it like disease blue, no one would uh, give a hoot. Uh, but disease X could lead to 20 times more fatalities than the coronavirus pandemic. So what novel efforts are needed to prepare healthcare systems for the multiple challenges ahead? So uh, here we have a, a bunch of people and we'll be monitoring this session. You can follow it along from home as well. Uh, them talking about this mystery disease that no one's ever heard of that the WHO actually identified in 2018 uh, that we're already saying, oh, it's going to be 20 times worse than COVID. So let's get ready. Uh, well, in the same breath, we are hearing public health officials admit that their measures for COVID were not even rooted in science in many cases. So uh, we can look at the agenda just very briefly because we are going to be reporting from Davos next year and or next week rather, maybe next year, who knows, uh, but next week. And there are a number of sessions that I'm incredibly curious about. One of them is talking about the future of freedom of expression. Now in the past, when they talk about freedom of expression, it's not spoken about as a positive, really. It's spoken about as something that is uh, getting in the way, uh, these absolute rights and freedoms. There is also one that sounds lovely. It sounds great, but if you look into the fine print, it might not be so great. The session is called Protecting the Vulnerable Online. Uh, the description, more than half of internet users worldwide, age 13 and older, face at least one potential online threat, cyberbullying, online harassment, hate speech, and misinformation pose significant challenges. What are the key developments in trust and safety online and what measures should stakeholders, and that includes governments and corporations to them, embrace to foster a safer internet for all? Uh, and one of the panelists on this one, I should point out, is Julie Inman Grant, who's an Australian online safety bureaucrat, who uh, two Davos meetings ago talked about how we need to recalibrate the way we view freedom of speech. So, uh, I mean, I'm all for recalibrating free speech as well, but I want to recalibrate it to actually protect it, not to get rid of it. Uh, Sean has said he attempted to write decalibrate, but wrote de rate, uh, whatever that means. So anyway, uh, <laughs> I think he was going for recalibrate. Uh, let's uh, we will we will put a pin in this and revisit it from the Swiss slash Austrian Alps next week. But uh, before we get there, I, I wanted to talk about the scourge of anti-Semitism, which I am very ashamed to say as a Canadian has become the norm and the rule rather than the exception. We've had some little bits of uh, change on this front. Uh, Toronto police have decided now that no people shouldn't be uh, shutting down a bridge in a Jewish 
neighborhood to protest against Israel because, you know, let's be real, they're just protesting against Jews. But at the same time, we also see an increasing normalization of this. All of the people who were uh, tremendous supporters of Israel and the Jewish people on October 7th, 8th, and 9th, and 10th have become less and less so as time has gone on. And the media has become a very key player in this. Barbara Kay had a fantastic piece in the Epic Times. She said to uphold the preferred narrative, the media will go to any lengths to demonize Israel. Barbara Kay joins us now, and it's always good to see her. Barbara, thanks for joining me today. A pleasure to be here, Andrew. So, I mean, the media's role in this cannot be at all overstated. The, the media, I mean, when you're talking about something happening in the Middle East, the media is, uh, to some extent, our only glimpse at what's happening there. And we've seen the framing on Israel issues to just be uh, absolutely disastrous. And, you know, CBC not uh, calling Hamas a terror organization, which is a, a statement of fact. It's a statement of law in Canada. It's not even a, an arguable point. And, you know, media that does false equivalency at one point, they referred to the uh, agreement by Israel to release prisoners in exchange for hostages as a hostage exchange, which is just, again, a, an absurd thing here. But uh, you've talked about the media really being particularly brazen on this. They're very brazen. Um, we uh, just saw, I don't know if you saw it on X, uh, Honest Reporting had had done a, an expose of uh, of. Uh, some Reuters and, and Associated Press journalists uh, in Gaza laughing about, you know, looking at some of the atrocities of October 7th and laughing. Uh, Gaza is filled with so-called journalists. Uh, we know that some of the journalists uh, that the New York Times employed actually accompanied uh, Hamas on the rampage, the pogrom of October 7th. In other words, they knew about it in advance. Uh, they wanted to capture it as it happens. And it was clear that from their, the way, the familiar way in which they were uh, uh, palling around with the Hamas fighters, that they are actually supporters of Hamas or likely supporters of Hamas. And uh, as I've said many times uh, on social media, you know, the, and in my column that you cited, the very words from sources in Gaza uh, should send alarm bells ringing in any mainstream news outlet because there is no such thing as a Gaza re a report out of Gaza that is inherently trustworthy. Not that they always uh, give false news, uh, but you can never be sure that they're not giving false news because no reporter is allowed to report from Gaza uh, without uh, censorship by uh, Hamas. And so no reporter is free to publish what they want from Gaza uh, it, unless it goes through uh, Hamas uh, re, you know, censorship. And as well, many of the journalists, the so-called journalists in Gaza are actually uh, not journalists. They are, are simply working for Hamas in the capacity of stringers for other you know, uh, bigger mm -hmm. companies, but they are in fact agents for Hamas.
I, I only speak about, you know, four or five lines of Arabic, so I have to rely on on other translations when I, I see Arabic footage. But I have seen at least three or four clips from within the last few months, uh, which are presented as uh, some of one of those journalists that you were just describing interviewing people. And when they start to criticize Hamas, the interview gets quickly and abruptly ended. So when the people in Gaza are saying, well, hang on, Hamas is using us as shields, uh, the, the interview ends. So you're right. There is no you know, unbiased commitment to truth there, uh, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I think, a big part of it. A lot of these are, are activists wearing press vests. Yeah. And of course, you know, you expect biased reporting from uh, Al Jazeera. You know, that's that's uh, that's their job. But when it comes to uh, New York Times, BBC, CNN, um, we just saw a story out of CNN. Some of their uh, Middle Eastern uh, stringers were posting disgustingly anti-Israel uh, stuff on social media. Um, they, they've lost control of the journalistic situation over there, it seems to me, uh, since they have decided to accept stuff coming out of Gaza without verifying. And, and when you see the BBC doing that and the CBC, you really, you really, it's really sickening because there's a long history of this. They know very well that a lot of reports are doctored or they're, they're complete fiction, complete fiction. And as we've seen in the whole Palestinian movement in, in the last several decades, uh, you know, truth in journalism is not a value. It's not a, it's not a Middle Eastern value in regimes that are not democratic and none of them are except Israel. Um, I mean, you'll get honest reporting out of Egypt and some of the bigger, the, the more stable, uh, mm -hmm. uh, entities there, but from the West Bank or Gaza, you really have to verify anything you hear out of there. Uh, and in fact, I remember in, in a column I wrote some time ago, um, I remember there was a report uh, from Matty Friedman, one of the top journalists on this scene, uh, who recounted the anecdote of a West Bank, uh, politician checking with an Israeli journalist to see if what he was being told by his own journalists in the West Bank was true or not. He just, uh, a rumor uh, that, that there was an assassination plot. He didn't know whether to believe it or not. So he checked with Israeli journalists. Uh, that's how bad it is. You talk about this phenomenon, which I, I've heard before, and it sounds silly, but it's actually a very serious thing, which is Pallywood. And I'm wondering if you could explain that for, for people that haven't come across this term. I guess not. I guess she can't explain that. Uh, hopefully, we'll get, oh, there we go. We got Barbara back. I'm so sorry. I, this has happened before, Andrew. I, I, yeah, I, I have, I'm having flashbacks now, like literal yeah. flashes. And then, yeah. <laughs> and now you're freezing up again a little bit, too. I don't know. I'm on Chrome. Uh, I don't I'm know hearing you now. Can you hear me? I hear you very well okay. now. Perfect. Uh, so t tell me what Pallywood is for people that aren't familiar. Pallywood is an actual news, pr news producing industry um, in the West Bank and Gaza. And it's like Bollywood uh, in the sense that it's it's fake stuff, but uh, it's an actual industry. There are producers and directors and actors and extras, um, all kinds of uh, uh, industry norms going on that actually are producing fake news. Uh, so if they want to show that an Israeli uh, struck, say, uh, a site, then they will then they will uh, produce it. They will actually create a scene and produce it with fake dead people on stretchers and suddenly an ambulance comes screeching up. Uh, you know, somebody hails an ambulance and it comes screeching up 
four seconds later. So it's it's um it's it's and then they produced it as news. Uh, the famous Mohammed Al Dura affair mm-hmm. in two thousand. Um, that was highly contested. It was shot by a Palestinian stringer who was also well known in Hollywood industry of making fake news. But he had sent a 59 second clip that purported to show that uh, during the Intifada, uh, that Israeli snipers had actually targeted and killed a 12 year old boy by the name of Muhammad Al Dura. Um, when the 23 minutes of raw footage was seen by other journalists and skeptics, uh, presented a very different picture. Uh, and eventually, there were lawsuits over this, and eventually the IDF concluded and reported. There was no way that child could have been hit by an Israeli bullet because of the angle of the bullet and all that. But th- that was one of the bigger stories. But mm-hmm. they're very consequential, these stories, like the Janine massacre. The Janine massacre, you may remember in 2002, uh, when they were trying to get to the source of the all the suicide bombers. Uh, they had a ground operation into Janine. The first reports out of the West Bank were a massacre of 500 civilians. And that story stuck. In the end, after many reports and many actual um, investigations, uh, it was concluded that 53 civilians were killed and 23 IDF soldiers who had done a ground invasion in order not to kill kill civilians. And as a result, were ambushed, their own soldiers got killed, but they were trying to prevent civilian death. But these stories are used as propaganda again and again and again. Um, And the images are extremely emotive. So um, this industry uh, is extremely harmful. Uh, It's called lethal journalism. It is lethal uh, because people die over it. Osama bin Laden used the Mohammed al-Dura story uh, in his own propaganda because he could Mm -hmm. see that the picture of this boy huddling behind his father, apparently being targeted by Israeli bullets, which was not the case. They are made into martyrs. They are, do you remember that little boy, uh, the Syrian boy yes. lying in the sand, that little two-year-old boy? And these images have an incredible effect. Well, and, um, and I recall, I seem to recall that there, there was evidence that emerged later that that boy had been moved. I mean, it was still a tragedy, but the photo had been to some extent staged to make a bigger point from that. It, it's not hard to see that... Uh, this whole Palestinian issue, this whole Israel is is a very much um, an emotional thing. And a lot of the people that are active in it, uh, when you corner them and you ask them, uh, you know, to state why, they don't even know why. They're part of a herd. Uh, in fact, the Toronto Sun just had a piece out today saying some of these protesters are being paid um, to be part of these protests. But anyways, there's a lot of hysteria involved uh, in these protests, because this issue has, uh, you know, Palestinian activists uh, on campuses, for example, they're there for years and years. Not they're not very good at studying, but they're very good at propaganda. This is this is they're paid for this. Uh, you know, there are a lot of foreign funding of these movements in the West. Uh, it's a very deep rabbit hole, Andrew, and you know we could spend hours on this. But in terms of the journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, the irresponsible journalism that is attached to this subject, it's uh, just remarkable how far uh, these media outlets will go to push a 
narrative that is harmful to Israel, they are lock, stock, and barrel, committed advocacy journalists rather than um, objective. It's just not journalism simply is not what you it's not what it should be. It's not what True North does. Uh, it is it is uh, pure. It is getting to be pure propaganda uh, in too many of formerly respectable uh, outlets. So it's yeah, we're lucky to have a few um, outlets <laughs> in Canada, like the National Post, True North, uh, the Epoch Times, that uh, that is I, what I consider to be journalism that verifies sources, actually fact checks, you know, does basic stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, what should be, uh, you know, used to be basic and, and second nature anyway. And uh, the only area where you could say uh, that, that can rival the Israel hatred in much of the media is in academia, uh, oh, as yes. we've seen in the last few months. And I just very briefly wanted to ask you about this story, because I understand you're writing about it this week in another piece. Uh, there is now a, a class action lawsuit against uh, so far six major Canadian universities, Queens, York, uh, Concordia in Montreal, uh, TMU, which used to be Ryerson before Ryerson's name became a hate crime, and uh, the University of British Columbia uh, facing claims that Jewish students are unsafe on their campuses. And I, I mean, look, that, that, that's a difficult thing to refute with just raw footage we've seen of what's happened on these campuses, isn't it? Yeah, I always felt that uh, lawsuits were the way to go. I, I, was, I was promoting the idea years and years and years ago, I said, the only way these universities are going to change if it hits them in the pocketbook, uh, the, um, uh, the, this, this particular, uh, these particular class actions are by, uh, a law firm, but they are in partnership with the Lawfare Project, which is a pro bono, uh, legal fund for, um, fighting anti-Semitism around the world. They do phenomenal work and, uh, they just, uh, they just had a very big success, uh, with, uh, uh, against a restaurant in Toronto, an owner of a restaurant uh, for defaming and defamation suit against a Canadian uh, media personality who was, was also a Zionist and was targeted on social media. So unless, unless uh, lawsuits make these institutions pay out big time, and the one against McMaster is, what, $77 million, mm. um, and the more that are targeted, the better, because just a couple have to win and you'll see the whole culture of university will be forced to change. Uh, and that's the only way this is going to be happening. Just as in the States, uh, that president was not going to Claudine Gay from Harvard. She was not prepared to step down. Um, but donor, you know, uh, when you lose a billion dollars in funding from your donor class, um, that, that talks louder than ideology. And uh, I can only pray that these lawsuits succeed because I think that's going to have a very abrupt, if they do, it'll have a very abrupt and very um, cleansing effect on, on uh, campuses in terms of anti-Semitism. I know you're you're Jewish yourself, and and you live in Montreal, which has always had a, a very vibrant Jewish community. How, how have you? What's your sense been? I mean, that you, I know you are are not recognizably Jewish, like some Orthodox uh, people in Montreal are. So I don't know if you personally feel unsafe walking around. But what's the mood been in the last few months there? Well, I mean, certainly there have been incidents that are quite harrowing. You know, bullets mm -hmm. in a door of uh, of in school in in areas that are intensely Jewish. I, I live in a very mixed and very diverse neighborhood. Uh, I am known to be Jewish because I 
from my writing. So I'm a pup, you know, publicly identified as mm -hmm. Jewish. Uh, but I don't feel physically unsafe. No, my neighbor, not in my neighborhood, but I know that there are areas uh, where, yes, uh, people do feel unsafe and, and for reason. Uh, so far, nothing cataclysmic has happened, but there have been threats and, and you know, there have been incidents in malls and just like there have been in Toronto, there, there have been a lot of very unsettling uh, incidents. And I know on campus, uh, Concordia is known to be a hotbed of um, pro-Palestinianism, mm. uh, UQAM and uh, McGill to a certain extent, but Concordia has had a long time reputation of, uh, that's where Laith Maruf got his start in uh, anti-Semitic yeah. <laughs> um, activism. Yeah, anyone who said hate doesn't pay certainly didn't uh, yeah, look yeah. at the business model there. So. Uh, um, well, yeah, so. <laughs> Barbara Kay, uh, fantastic work in the Epic Times and in the National Post, as always. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. All right. That does it for us for today. That uh, means I am saying farewell to Canada for a little bit of time, but we will uh, see you on Monday from Davos. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show on True North. Thank you. God bless and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.